this week on the Back Table Podcast. The urethra is one of the levels of support of the pelvic floor. So when you have a pelvic floor specialist who is doing an anterior colporophy or a sacrospinous ligament suspension or a sacrocopopexy, when that procedure is finished, that vagina is going to be elevated towards the sacrum in all probability. And that's going to take with it the urethra because the urethra is one of the levels of support of the pelvic floor and the vagina it inserts right there, um, right in the distal vagina. So if you do your sling and you tension it at the beginning of the case before that elevation portion of the procedure has happened, then you're definitely going to change the dynamics of the tensioning and it's probably going to be too tight and that's exactly what happened yeah that's exactly what happened yeah hello everyone and welcome back to back table urology podcast your source of all things urology you can find all previous episodes of our podcast on itunes spotify and back table this is jose oche silva as your host this week and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Dr. Jair Santiago. Uh, she's the, the director of Women Pelvic Medicine and Associated Professor of Urology at UC San Diego. Uh, Jair also a fellow Puerto Rican. So, so Jair, so uh, let, let's start with a, with a couple of things. So uh, when you were in residency, you talk about, about the, the, the teaching part of, of that, and, and you really enjoyed uh, that, that aspect of being a urologist. So, so how, how's life as an attending? Pretty awesome. I am an attending at UC San Diego Health. It definitely was what I expected that it would be in so far as interacting with residents and fellows and getting to teach medical students. But what I also think is quite awesome right now is that I get to interact with a lot of Spanish-speaking patients in San Diego and patients who travel from south of the border in Mexico. And I think that was one of the things I was most worried about when I chose to not return to Puerto Rico yeah. for uh, my practice and instead stay in the United States is that I would miss out on taking care of patients who spoke the same language as me and had a similar background. And definitely San Diego has given me a flavor of that. You know, I always miss Puerto Rico. It's home and I haven't been there in a while because of this pandemic, Yeah, I mean, but, but definitely that, that has been a big plus of practicing in San Diego. Yeah. I guess you, you always mentioned you wanted to go back to Puerto Rico. There's, there's a, a big need for, for pelvic floor. Uh, so, so yeah. So, so how, how did you end up in, in San Diego? I mean, you went to, to Michigan for the fellowship. And it was mainly that part, uh, the patient's population, or, or what was there something else that drove you to San Diego? There are a lot of factors that come into play when people are selecting where they're going to practice. And obviously, heading back home to the Caribbean was really high on my priority list because my family is there. I feel a commitment to the patients, and they really definitely could benefit from more female pelvic medicine specialists in Puerto Rico. I think the biggest challenge. There were two big challenges. One was that I wanted to retain some funding, some grant funding to be able to do research. And that was going to be challenging, uh, taking that with me to Puerto Rico. And then the other challenge was that, you know, we, you know, I'm married. So I have a spouse whose career is also thriving and growing. And it was really hard for him to continue that going back to Puerto Rico. So we kind of had to 
have a meeting of the minds and look at our options and San Diego just ended up being the best fit. So you mentioned you're a public floor specialist. Uh, when we were residency, I mean, you're a guy, uh, female urologist. So, so that, that's how you, you describe yourself, a, a, a pelvic specialist? I consider myself a pelvic floor specialist. One of the nice things, and, and a lot of patients will call me their urogynecologist, even though I'm board certified in urology. I also have a certification in pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery. But one thing that does distinguish urologists like me who practice in this subspecialty is that we'll also often see men. And so men have pelvic floor problems too. They can suffer from voiding problems. They can suffer from urinary incontinence. And so I get to take care of patients like that as well. But the majority of my patients, I'd say about 60 to 70% of my practice is in women. Okay. So, so what, what's a, a week uh, in your practice? Let, take me through your day. Sure. So my practice is unique because I'm Spanish speaking and I'm one of the few Spanish speaking urologists in my department. And so I have a practice that goes to a lot of the places where Spanish speaking patients live. So I have a downtown practice that I'm in once a week. I also take care of our veterans at the VA. And then I have another practice in La Jolla, which is our largest hospital. And because La Jolla can be difficult to access for some of the patients that I take care of, I end up being in those three locations. So on a typical day, I'll either be in clinic with residents and fellows for the whole day and doing procedures like injections and neurodynamic and um, pelvic examinations, et cetera, or I'll be in the operating room where I'll do mostly outpatient surgeries, but on occasion, because I take care of patients with complex urinary problems, I'll do bigger cases like bladder augmentations and diversions. Okay. So yeah, I didn't know you were doing those big cases also. So, uh, let, let, let's, let's uh, talk today about female incontinence. So, so let, uh, purely stress incontinence. So let's, so let's say a patient, a woman goes to your clinic and tells you she has incontinence. How, how's the, 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 the process of how you evaluate that patient? Number one, incontinence in women is one of the most common problems that I take care of. And interestingly, it's one of the urinary problems that takes patients the longest to seek care. So a lot of women will have been suffering with this problem for years or even decades before they seek care for that issue. When women come into my clinic seeking care for urinary incontinence, it can be one of two main types. They either have stress incontinence, which is leakage when they cough, laugh, sneeze, or exercise, or they can have urgency incontinence or what we call overactive bladder. And that is leakage that's associated with a strong urge with urinary frequency or incontinence associated with that urgency. It's really important when I talk to women to do three important things. Number one is to get to know them and to understand how this problem is impacting their life because that factors into my decision-making for them. Two, what their expectations are. Some women come into the office already knowing a little bit about what they want or don't want to do. So I don't want to patronize them or give them an option that doesn't fit into what they were expecting. 
And then three, and probably most importantly, to be honest, is to distinguish whether their problem is stress predominant or urgency predominant, because those two domains of incontinence are treated completely differently. And you definitely don't want to get them mixed up or you're going to have a patient that's quite bothered. And most women have both, but there's usually one that's predominant over the other. And so I try to distinguish that in my conversation with the women that I treat. And, and that's based on purely on the, on, on the complaints of the patient, uh, which one you determine which one is do more dominant. Yeah. You know, I'm in an academic center. So one of the things that might distinguish my practice from someone who's in a uh, private practice, for example, is that we have really intense questionnaires and, you know, patients don't always love them. They come into the clinic and they could spend maybe 10, 15, 20 minutes filling out a questionnaire. So by the time I see them, I have a pretty good idea if they have stress incontinence, urgency incontinence, or a mixture of both. But it's always important to talk to them because sometimes women may not want to fill out all the questionnaires or they may fill them out in a way that's perhaps a little misleading or doesn't answer their concerns perfectly. So that's what I tend to do is kind of sit down with them and distinguish those two. And yes, the symptoms are what distinguish one from the other. Yeah, most of those patients, uh, they're already frustrated going to other physicians jumping from medication to medication and not, not accurately knowing what they have or treating what they have. So, so they go to you, the specialists, and they want a, an answer or a solution immediately. So sometimes that's, a, that's very tricky. And I, I, I bet in your case to, to, to like slow, to slowly pace down with the patients, Hey, we're going to do the process. We're going to see what's going on and then, uh, I'll offer a solution. Uh, do, do you find that also in your practice? Yeah. So I will tell my, that's a hundred percent what I see. And I tell my residents this a lot. I tell them it is very common in my practice for me to spend that first visit, getting to know the patient, doing a pelvic exam. Whenever they come in with these complaints of urinary incontinence, I will do a pelvic exam. It's not mandated from a guidelines perspective, but most of the time it is going to be something in your toolkit that you will want to do so that you can strategically plan what kind of interventions you want for the patient. So anyway, I tell my residents and fellows all the time that very often we'll have that first visit and the patient gets so much information and options to treat their problem that they can't really make a decision right then. So I'll often schedule, especially now in the advent of telemedicine, I'll schedule phone calls or telemedicine visits in a few weeks after that initial visit to kind of go over those options that I talked to them about and then actually schedule either an intervention or therapy or, or something else. That may not be something convenient to everyone in practice. It really depends what kind of a practice you have, but that works really well for me. Okay. And, and will you do a cystoscopy and your dynamic study on everyone? Or is there like some sort of depending on the symptoms is depending on the, uh, on the type of, uh, of frustration the patient has, would you start a treatment first or, or how, how do you decide? That's, that's an excellent question as well. And, and really important. So for me in the treatment of pure stress incontinence, there is no need for a cystoscopy or for a urodynamic evaluation. If the patient has a, some objective 
signs of incontinence on your exam. And the best way to demonstrate that is a cough stress test. And a cough stress test is just that. The patient will cough while you're examining them and you look for visible signs of urine leaking when they cough. And you can also see urethral hypermobility. Women who demonstrate that on an exam are going to absolutely be candidates, as long as they don't have contraindications otherwise, they're going to absolutely be candidates for surgical therapy for their incontinence. If they have urgency incontinence, they also don't need cystoscopy or urodynamics. However, a lot of these women will also have hematuria, either gross or microscopic. And then I start to think about a workup. The other times that I think about urodynamics is that is that some of these women will have an elevated residual urine volume after they empty their bladder. And so if there's any suspicion that their incontinence may also be related to incomplete emptying of their bladder, I will consider doing either a bladder diary or a urodynamic study, but I try as hard as I can to not do a urodynamic study off, right off the bat because it can be really uncomfortable. And in fact, just a small plug, that's one of the focus of my research. I have a clinical trial looking at a non-invasive method of monitoring the bladder like urodynamics, but without needing the catheters that can be so uncomfortable for women. Oh, wow. That, 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 that's interesting. Uh, so, so let's say you, you have a patient, stress incontinence, young patient, let's say in, in the 40s, that patient has a little bit of urge and frequency, but no leakage, with, with, so no, no urge incontinence. Will you start a treatment for uh, overactive bladder or you would just go straight into the, you know, let's, let's say a sling treatment or, or something, some treatment for the stress and, and you, will you counsel them on the overactive bladder after you do a treatment? How will you go through, through that? Yeah, and that's, a, that's another great question because it is something that people who take care of a lot of women with incontinence are going to see on a daily basis. So I actually have a really nice visual aid that shows patients the two main types of urinary incontinence, the urge and the stress, and it lists the treatment options starting from the least invasive to the most invasive. And I basically have women prioritize for themselves what bothers them the most. And I tell them, hey, if your stress incontinence is what's bothering you, if you really want to get back to doing CrossFit without having to wear a diaper, or if you just want to be able to carry your kids without having to worry that you're going to leak, then treatment for stress incontinence is what's indicated for you. And I'll go over all of the treatments from pelvic floor exercises to a pessary, to a bulking agent, to a sling, either made out of their own tissue or made out of synthetic polypropylene or mesh, and let them decide for themselves. If they're really bothered with the urgency component, and for me, the women who have really bothersome nocturia or they're getting up at night to urinate, those women will really want to try to treat their overactive bladder first. So I, I really let the patient decide where they want to start. If I think they're going to be better off with one treatment or the other, I'll choose it for them and I'll explain to them why, but I ultimately let them decide for themselves. And in those patients that, that might have an overactive bladder, but I mean, they, they need to go, for example, when you said back, back to CrossFit, would you, would you do a procedure and, and also give, give them Ditropan or any other anticholinergic or any medication, or would you just do, try to treat the stress and see what happens? with the urge? 
I choose the latter. So I typically will recommend that women treat their most bothersome component and then within 12 weeks of their initial intervention, will circle back with the patient and then see how they're doing with their symptoms. One of the great things about clinical trials like the SISTER trial, which looked at outcomes of treating stress urinary incontinence in women, is that a lot of women who had a lot of urgency symptoms found that those symptoms also improved after having a sling. And in fact, there is currently a randomized control trial that we're recruiting for at UC San Diego where we're comparing first-line sling treatment versus Botox for women who have mixed urinary incontinence. And so those women through that clinical trial will undergo urodynamics to confirm that they in fact have both of those um, parameters present and they don't have a contraindication to either of those two procedures. And then we will randomize them to either a sling, which is a treatment for stress incontinence, or to Botox, which is a treatment for urgency incontinence. And those results, I think, will answer your question even better. But in my experience, a lot of women who have mixed incontinence and undergo a sling will find that a lot of their symptoms have improved enough that they don't need to try anticholinergics. Yeah, because sometimes, I mean, I, even though you may share to the patient, then they start continuing with the frequency to tell you, well, I'm not leaking, but I'm still the same. So, so definitely you treat up one part, uh, but you still have the frequency. So it's difficult to assess or, or to, uh, I'm, uh, depending on the patient, I usually give her the, the litropan and, and treat both at the same time and see how, how that goes. You know, yeah. So That's so, a great idea. I don't usually do that, but. I think it's great to be proactive. Yeah. Yeah. Because then you don't, you, you don't want them to say, hey, it didn't work. Right. So, but yeah, so, so it depends on the patient and, the, and, and, and some patients, you know, that they're understanding more than others. So maybe those that really understand, you can treat one at the same time, then they're more patient. But I guess it depends on the patient. Totally. And I, I will say my sling patients are some of the happiest patients yeah. that you can encounter. But when a patient with a sling does not get a good result or uh, when you have a patient who undergoes a sling who develops more urgency as opposed to less, and that can happen sometimes where their urgency is worsened by a sling. So they have more urinary urgency after they undergo the surgery. Those patients require a lot of counseling and reassurance to understand that in most cases, things get better. But I have had patients who have come to me very upset after having had a sling with another surgeon because they developed this very bothersome urgency. And when we evaluated the patient with urodynamics, what was happening is that the sling was too tight. So there, it's tricky with slings. I think if patients have really bothersome urgency after a sling surgery, that's not to be expected. And, and they'll need, like you said, some proactive measures with either a medication or even looking to uh, third-line therapies for overactive bladder like a Botox or sacro- even sacral neuromodulation. Okay. And you mentioned pelvic floor exercises. I mean, do, do you send everybody prior to the procedure or if they have stress incontinence, everybody has to go to pelvic floor or there are patients that you say, hey, might not work. Let's just go into a more invasive procedure or something else. Right. I'm a big believer in pelvic floor physical therapy. I think that it's really 
nice for women to learn to take care of their pelvic floor and to understand the muscles that are there. I think it can be really helpful, not just for incontinence, but also for their sexual function. But I leave it up to the patient and I explain to the patients that if you really want pelvic floor exercises to work, you have to dedicate yourself to that really for the rest of your life and you have to be committed to it. It's like undergoing any sort of therapy or exercise program. The more you put into it, the better results you're going to see. And some women are really honest with me and they'll tell me, look, this is not something that fits in with my lifestyle and that's totally fine. And some women do it and prefer to do that as opposed to going straight into surgery and they come back after the therapy feeling like their symptoms have improved to the point where they don't feel like surgery is in the cards for them any longer. And I consider that a success as well. Yeah, definitely. And also access to, to, to the public. Yeah. yeah. Not, not, not everybody. I'm in a community hospital and we don't have one. So, so they have to drive half an hour, 45 minutes to their appointments. And sometimes most younger patients to do tend to go, I, I try to push them, uh, that way first. But definitely older, older patients that, that might have problems driving all that. Uh, I mean, I may share it to them and, and see what they think. Uh, but most of the time I end up doing a procedure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think my practice would be in line with that too. Yeah. The access to care for pelvic floor physical therapy is really problematic. I take care of a lot of minority patients and underserved patients, and usually there's only one pelvic floor physical therapy location that's contracted with them with that insurance. And so it can be really limiting for women who might be interested in doing it, but their insurance either won't cover it or won't offer them a location that's close to where they live. I'm fortunate that now my institution has set up some internal pelvic floor physical therapy, but for now it's only in La Jolla. So patients who live 45 minutes away in Bonita or in Chula Vista or somewhere else are you know, limited to that location and it doesn't always work for them. So I do get patients who end up choosing something else just because they don't have that access, which is definitely a disparity. So, so let, let's, talk, uh, let's talk about sling surgery. Uh, are you doing TBT, STOT, mini sling? Well, what are you doing? Are you doing different procedures depending on, on, on the patient and also for, for residents to learn? What are you doing? So I, yeah, so I have trained to do TBTs, TOTs, mini slings from bottom up, top down at, you know, all different kinds of slings. I've seen them all. And my preferred route for sling is the retropubic sling. The reason that I like the retropubic sling, again, the sling surgery is the most common surgery that I do. And so for me, the retropubic sling has the best results and it also keeps the arms of the sling within the retropubic compartment, which I think is, you know, the urologist's domain. A TOT, on the other hand, involves placement of the sling through the obturator and involves the groin. And I do think that when patients develop really uh, severe groin pain after a TOT, it can be really debilitating to their quality of life. And for me, that's prohibitive and places the TOT in a category of a type of procedure that, that I prefer not to perform. 
That said, there's also the mini sling, which is similar to a TOT, except that the mesh arms don't go all the way through um, into the groin. And a lot of my colleagues in pelvic medicine place mini slings and do think that the recovery from the mini sling is a lot easier for women, especially for younger women. I, again, have not had any um, difficulty with the retropubic sling and its recovery. And so that tends to be my sling of choice. But I also think that a TOT, especially like, for example, a robotic procedure or a pelvic organ prolapse procedure when you're doing these things in combination can be a really nice short bookend to a long case. And, and I don't um, disavow it or think that it's not a great option. TOTs, however, I'm slightly biased again, just because of that potential for the growing pain. Yeah, I personally, the same reason I do a week. I'm interested. I haven't done mini slings. I'm interested in doing, especially for, for big women, uh, that have big, big pelvis. I don't know. Sometimes you struggle putting the trocar in. Uh, so I don't know, but for now I'll continue using the, the TBTs. Uh, is there any specific brand name you're using? So I have used many different brands. I don't have a preference. My institution is contracted. So full disclosure, we're contracted with Caldera because we, you know, we need to go for the lowest cost option. And that was what the lowest cost options were when we looked into pricing. But for example, at the VA, I use Boston Scientific Advantage and, you know, they have their Advantage Fit as well. And I think they're both really good slings. The difference is, I think, for people who are thinking about what you know, what to choose is that Caldera has a reusable trocar and the reusable trocar for Caldera, that's nice, right? Because you can process it. You always have it on hand, but it can get a little dull after many uses. And then Boston Scientific's trocar is much easier to deploy. And I think it's nice to um, use in resident education. And obviously Boston Scientific's commitment to resident education is really hard to beat as well. So I think if people are thinking about choosing between the two, I think they're both pretty equivalent. They're both nice and blue. So if anyone has to have a mesh excision for retention, for example, um, it can be easy to locate in order to do that, as opposed to some earlier slings that were a color that didn't, didn't permit that easy localization. Yeah, I use the Advantage Fit, and, and for now, the results has been good. And also, I mean, you have the Dixia, you see, they're, they're very small. So if you, I have had two perforation of bladder, which I have retracted, and, and, and I, I, you're able to see it. And luckily, the, the patients have, have been okay. Uh, right. When do you have to abort a, a case? Yeah, so the nice thing about the sling surgery is that it really is the kind of surgery where you can do it the exact same way each and every time. And it's very easy to become an expert and master the technique because there is very little variability in what you do. That said, um, I can think of two instances in which I would not proceed with a surgery. One would be if the urethra is injured during the dissection or also if you injure the urethra with the trocar when you're trying to pass the trocar. So those two instances, it 
there's a third instance actually that is extremely rare and um, full disclosure, I've never actually witnessed it in my career, but I have, it has been reported in the literature as if you have a bowel injury during trocar passage and for obvious reasons. So those two um, scenarios, urethral injury or bowel injury, I think would be a moment to abort the surgery. Another thing that can happen with the sling operations, more so with the autologous sling, but also for the synthetic slings is bleeding, especially if you're operating on a really young woman. And I've had very young women who have very well estrogenized vaginas where they have lost a significant amount of blood during the surgery. And so whenever I'm thinking of a patient that's younger who's interested in undergoing the surgery, I definitely keep that in the back of my mind because some of these patients will bleed quite a bit before the incision is closed. Do you do anything different in those cases? I mean, at the end, after you close, do you do any ultrasound or just wait and see how it goes? That's a great question. I thought about that a bunch. And really what I do, and it's the same for each case. Uh, for, for those young women, I definitely, th this would definitely be a case where I'm not teaching during the case. And I'm really the one that's taking it from point A to point B uh, completely independently. But then in addition, for all of my cases, when that urethral, when the vaginal incision is closed, I will actually take a lap or a Raytec and I'll hold pressure while the suprapubic perforation sites are closed with Dermabond and everyone's getting the patient cleaned up and uh, extubated in order to go to the recovery area. So that'll be probably five minutes of pressure in the vagina with a Raytec or a lap sponge. And then um, they go to the recovery with a Foley. I don't do an ultrasound. I don't necessarily admit them for observation. I definitely would if I were concerned about a lot of bleeding or if the patient were unstable. But luckily, that has been a very rare occurrence. So you always hear that, that the, the sling has to be tension-free. What does that mean? Yeah, so the, the mesh does have to be placed in a tension-free manner, which means that you don't want it to be abutting the urethra directly. You want it to have some space between the urethra and the sling where it's located. And that can mean different things to different people. And everyone has their style of tensioning. I tend to use the style that was used back when the mesh was described, the, the first sling cases were described, which was the placement of an eight Hagar dilator in between the sling and the urethra while you're tensioning. And so I'm always, whenever I'm tensioning, pulling the sheaths off the sling, I have that eight Hagar and I take it out, put it back in, make sure that it fits there snugly, but without putting any undue pressure on the urethra. And I do this tensioning with the 16 French Foley in place. I don't take it out. And that has tended to go pretty well. I've only had three cases of retention in my career. And those three women were all women who already had some incomplete bladder emptying. So I suspect that they had some intrinsic properties of their bladder that already predisposed them to being in retention. I actually haven't had a woman have a sling be placed too tightly who did not have um, some predisposition. 
Yeah. So I also use the Hager, but some people say that, that it needs to be like not touching the urethra. So just a little bit floating around. So, uh, uh, I mean, it's interesting that that's the same, same thing that I do, but, uh, what, what's, what's it, what would be the difference? I'm not sure. Do, do you know if there's a difference between letting it a little bit more loose? You know, definitely the important part is just not strangle the urethra. Right. Right. Uh, but in terms of how loose is too loose. So you don't want to just do, don't do anything. So my, one of my colleagues, Charlie Nager, he's this wonderful urogynecologist. He was the chair of OBGYN when I started my career. He always tells us that you can almost never make a sling too loose. And I think that that's true. It's always better to err on the side of making it more loose. And it's very difficult to actually make it so loose that the patient doesn't get a good result. And the reason for that is that you still have to close this very small incision. So if this, the sling is a little too loose, then it's going to be really hard for you to close the vaginal epithelium over the sling. So it always ends up being in that sweet spot where it's easy to close, but then not um, too close to the urethra is what I've seen in my experience. No, no, that's great. And that definitely makes sense. And that I feel better now because sometimes, because, <laughs> because I mean, like, like it's, even though I do four or five a month, uh, I mean, I'm, you're probably doing four or five a week or, or, or one day at least, uh, but, but you never know. I mean, it, it, you, I never had that reassurance that what, that I was doing was, was correct. Yeah. I think you're doing the perfect, I mean, just the fact that you're using the Hagar and not using like a tonsil or any sort of other instrument, I think keeps you where the evidence can be replicated in your own practice, right? All the trials were done in that way. And so you're replicating what you know uh, has excellent data. And then looking back, I mean, four to five slings in a week is a lot. And so I think you are definitely high volume enough that you have that. No, 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 no for, for a five month, on a month. Even no, no, no. Yeah, even so, that means you're doing about 60 slings a year. That's a lot. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a really good amount and super solid. And so if you're getting really great results with that technique that already has a lot of evidence behind it, I would not change anything. There's always going to be, you know, all women don't read the textbook and all their bodies are different and special. And definitely, if I continue to place slings the way that I'm doing, I'm bound to get somebody that goes into retention at some point. And like I said, I've already had three women. It just so happens they also had some other characteristics that predispose them, but there will be a day when somebody goes into retention and I have to divide the sling. And, and I think that, that uh, that's how anatomy is. So yeah, it happened to me once in back in Puerto Rico, we were doing a, a combined uh, a procedure, an APR, uh, I mean, uh, and an AP repair and, and then my part. And what I started doing afterwards is when I did combined procedures, just leave it looser and yeah. that helped. Because that's a friend of mine is a uh, Eurogyne and they told me, hey, you need to leave it a little bit looser. Because sometimes when they are closing the, uh, the, the way we do it, we did it was that I put the sling and they will continue with the repair. So they were the ones actually closing everything and that pushed everything upwards and yeah. then make it tighter. Yeah. So what yeah. I learned from that. Yeah. So that's a really great point that that's a huge pearl for uh, people who are doing prolapse cases and also sling surgery. When you, so the, the 
point AA on a pop cue. If you use a pop cue when you're measuring prolapse, you may not, but the urethra is one of the levels of support of the pelvic floor. So when you have a pelvic floor specialist who is doing an anterior colporophy or a sacrospinous ligament suspension or a sacrocopalpexy, when that procedure is finished, that vagina is going to be elevated towards the sacrum in all probability. And that's going to take with it the urethra because the urethra is one of the levels of support of the pelvic floor and the vagina inserts right there, um, right in the distal vagina. So if you do your sling and you tension it at the beginning of the case before that elevation portion of the procedure has happened, then you're definitely going to change the dynamics of the tensioning and it's probably going to be too tight. So. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. That's exactly what happened. Yeah. One other thing you could do, you could consider doing is you could have, you could be there when they select their tissue for their anterior repair. And when they're done tensioning and tying down and, and finish their portion of the procedure, then you can come in at the end and place your sling without an interruption. Yeah. Yeah. So next time I have that in mind. So uh, since I'm from, uh, from Puerto Rico here to Orlando, I have done combined cases. Um, so for now, I don't need to do that, but if, if at some point, probably going to have to do a combined case. So definitely noted. So, so for, do you always leave a, a catheter afterwards or anybody, you know, packing after a, a if everything goes smoothly, do you do, what do you do? So if everything's gone textbook and I'm really happy with the case, I will hold that vaginal pressure with that lap sponge or Raytech right of the staff or the, uh, my co-surgeons are putting their dermabond on and cleaning the patient and taking off the drapes and getting the patient extubated. And then once the patient's going into the recovery area, we'll remove that Raytech or the lap sponge. All of the patients go to the recovery area with a Foley and they all have a void trial in the recovery area where the nurses will backfill their bladder with 150 to 300 milliliters of saline. And then the patient will void before going home. And if they can't empty, then they'll go home with a catheter and come back in one or two days to void trial again. I, even in a, in the setting of like a perforation during trocar placement, because the trocars now are so small, I typically will have them void trial in the recovery area anyway. Yeah. So, so for my cases, uh, I, I always leave the catheter and, uh, but you know, packing because that's how I train. And for now I haven't had any problems, but definitely I know that, that all, I mean, uh, a friend of mine, a friend of yours, also Danny Hoffman. Uh, he told me he, he didn't do it. So, so maybe at some point I started moving towards that, that, that way, not leaving the cath or doing the voiding trial. Uh, so for, for special, for younger patients, do you, do, do you still do a sling? I will say like 20, 25 year old already had three kids, uh, their incontinence is, is there any special consideration in terms of what to expect afterwards? Yeah, that's, that's another population that requires a little bit of thought. So again, I try to follow my algorithm of looking to see what the patient expectations are. In general, younger women will choose to have, you know, more conservative therapies first, but on occasion you will see that type of patient that you described, a young woman who's already 
had her family or who does not have the intention of having a family or who is very, very bothered by the stress incontinence. And they will choose to undergo a sling because it has the highest effectiveness of all of the options to treat stress incontinence. And I don't have a problem with that. I, I have very rarely done sling surgery on women who are still planning to get pregnant. And what I explained to those women is that the sling and the presence of the sling should not make it any harder for them to get pregnant, which is fine. But the, the sling's effectiveness may change if they get pregnant and have a delivery, even if they choose to have a C-section, because a C-section alone um, can put pressure on the pelvic floor. And so that may change the dynamics of the urethra. And definitely if they have a vaginal delivery, even though we have data that shows that the incontinence rates are not very different after that vaginal delivery, what I found is that it can increase their um, bother uh, from incontinence, even if they've had a sling before. And no reconstructive surgery is going to last forever. So that's also com coming into play. You know, you can expect a sling. I think the longest data that we have for sling effectiveness is about 17 years, which is amazing. But it's not always going to be that way for every woman. And in terms of the post-operative care, I mean, what do you tell the patient? When can they start doing uh, exercise, lifting, uh, having sex? What do you tell the patient or what, what, what do you do? So I think this paradigm may change, but currently what I and a lot of my colleagues will recommend is six weeks of no heavy lifting, more than 10 pounds, nothing in the vagina during that time. So no intercourse for six weeks and, you know, no soaking, bathing, bathing in the ocean, et cetera. There are currently some clinical trials that are actually looking at whether we need to be having those um, restrictions present for the patients. I think that some restrictions are going to be necessary, whether it's six weeks or maybe less, I think remains to be seen. I bet you it's probably not necessary for it to be six weeks, but I don't want to take that chance, you know, and most women are pretty happy doing that because they want their sling to work. And if you think about how the sling works, since it's tension-free, it actually has to scar at the endopelvic fascia right in that position. And you don't want it to stretch out because then it's not going to be effective for them when they have those moments of effort or coughing or sneezing. And so I think it's a, it's a good investment of their time to follow the restrictions. But I bet in maybe in a few years, we'll be counseling them that maybe it needs to be four weeks or three weeks instead of six. Yeah, I usually do two months just to be on the safe side. Yeah. Uh, and then definitely diabetic patients, people are still smoking. I, I tell them it's going to be lo longer. Right. Just because we know healing will be less. So, exactly. Jair, uh, anything else you want to add to our listeners? I think that one really important thing, especially for people who take care of women who have urinary complaints, is to definitely listen to the patients the women are so different and their perspectives are so varied. And you'll find that some women really are open to having surgery and they really want that. And some women are really afraid. And the great thing about treatments for stress incontinence is that none of the treatments burn any bridges. So you can have a bulking agent and then in a few years you can have a sling. You can always 
do pelvic floor physical therapy if you want to. And some women are going to need various treatments throughout their lifetime. So if you're going to offer one of these procedures, you should feel comfortable counseling patients about all of them because that way you're delivering the best care for your individual patient. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, like you mentioned, communication, listening to the patient, and that definitely will give you the the, the better results. Uh, I, I bet you see a lot of patients that they com complain of frequency or or, or, or stress and they had the, the wrong treatment. Yeah. That, that was it. I mean, maybe they put a sling for our urgent continence. The patient's still the same. The sling is perfectly fine. No, no, no erosion or anything, but still it was the, the wrong treatment. So, so definitely talk to the patient, uh, listen to them, ask the right questions. Yeah. Asking the right question is actually a really important one. I had a woman who came to see me who was really upset because she had seen a urologist and she felt like the urologist was telling her that the incontinence was all due to the fact that she was too emotional. And it was because he was using an interpreter that was literally telling her that she had stress incontinence or that her incontinence was happening because she was really stressed out. And she was pissed because wow. he, she, he was interpreting stress as, you know, Estrés, like emotional yeah. distress and not esfuerzo, which is effort, which is how we would translate it in Spanish. And she was mad and she really wasn't stressed out. She just had stress incontinence. Yeah, definitely. And, and that's a, a complete different conversation that uh, the, the tra translation, all that with all the, the different uh, ethnicities that we see and, and, and languages. So that, that, and that really poses a problem. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a, a, a entire separate podcast, but definitely something very, very important that we that we're dealing with, uh, and we need to do a better care or a better, better of what we're doing or how we're doing it. Yeah, for sure, and definitely we need to give more opportunity to Spanish-speaking trainees and and people that can actually go to these communities and and speak to women in the language that they know and understand. Good, awesome, exactly. So, Jair, uh, thank you again for your time. Thank you for uh, being here. I will definitely talk more. We have neurogenic bladder. We have uh, uh, urgent continence, a bunch of other topics. Uh, definitely, I know you, you're into uh, women in urology, women in surgery, uh, minority uh, in, in, in surgery and urology. So definitely all those topics will be touched along uh, uh, the way of this podcast. Awesome. Yeah, happy to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Okay, take care, Jay. Thank you. Bye.